Hi, and welcome to the How Not to Think podcast, the show that looks at everything from artificial intelligence to natural stupidity and everything in between. I have conversations with great guests from many different fields as we talk about things like binary thinking, cognitive bias, conventional wisdom, and so much more. I'm Dr. Howard Rankin, and if you're interested in these topics, I encourage you to check out my books on Amazon, including I Think, Therefore I'm Wrong, Intuitive Rationality, and uh, a new book currently up for pre-sale, Falling to Grace, The Art and Science of Redemption. Hi, and today's guest comes to us from Toronto, Canada. I'm really excited and honored to have with me Tom Beekbang. Uh, he comes from England, like myself, um, but has multiple talents. He is the author of a book, How to Understand Everything, A New Way to See the World, um, with many, many interesting references across a whole variety of disciplines about how the brain works and how we should approach understanding ourselves. Interestingly, uh, Tom, he studied all sorts of different things. He has uh, a degree in uh, biochemistry and neurophysiology, but for the last 30 plus years, he's been a major marketer, uh, brand strategies and communications, working with Fortune 500 companies and being very successful. Anyway, enough from me. Um, Tom, welcome so much. I'm delighted to be with you, Howard. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. I've really been looking forward to it. And, and Tom's book, How to Understand Everything, really is, it, it's one of those books uh, that for me really resonated and really helped me in my own thinking. Um, we think along similar lines uh, about how uh, human beings have tried to understand things and the different methods they've used and how, to the most part, they have not been adequate enough to understand everything. How, tell us, Tom, first of all, about your trajectory. As I say, you have so much interest in different disciplines of getting to where you are today in the writing of this book. Sure. Well... Um, starting near the beginning. Uh, as a young boy, I was an introvert and deeply interested in science. So I spent a lot of time just leafing through science books and National Geographic and looking down a microscope at drops of water, looking at the little paramecia and, and uh, uh, single-celled organisms like motoring around a drop of water. So um, th through school, I was honestly not a very attentive pupil, like as many young boys are. <laughs> Um, and, but, I, but I did love science and I was fortunate enough to go to schools that actually enabled us to practice science. Uh, so I learned science, not from textbooks. I learned it, um, at, um, at the, a bench and, uh, actually doing, uh, chemistry and, and physics and, and, and looking at organisms and, um, uh, an understanding biological from observation. So that, I think that's a little bit different from mm -hmm. the way taught, uh, uh, science is taught these days. Um, so I, I studied 
neurophysiology and biochemistry at, at Durham University, but never saw myself as someone who wanted to go into science. I, I wanted to be an entrepreneur and then a business person. And um, I picked marketing because it was um, actually the most difficult um, of all of the disciplines to get into. Mm. And, and I applied to various large companies and, and was fortunate enough to get a fantastic job with this company, United Biscuits, which we're both familiar with, because we have probably eaten half our share of McVitie's uh, chocolate digestives and so on. Question. Uh, and, and then I, uh, back in 1986, I set up a computer graphics company because I was very keen on uh, the, the potential of using computers to, to create um, images. And indeed, that was long before other people had sort of realized that that was the way of the future. Uh, and so for the last, whatever it is, um, uh, over 35 years, I've, I've been running a marketing communi communications companies. And I've been trying to um, reconcile the world of what I actually do every day with my team, uh, communicating to consumers and business people with the world of textbooks, which haven't really been much of a, of a help to me. And what I love, which is, is understanding science and how things work. So uh, in about 1998, I started writing a book about uh, neurophysiology and how that could help uh, communications professionals like me and my employees do their job better. Um, but, it, but the book I wrote at that time was uh, not at all easy to read. So I abandoned it. Uh, I was rather embarrassed that I spent like three years writing uh, an, a completely unreadable book. And then at the beginning of the lockdown, um, I became so frustrated with what I wasn't reading in the news uh, mm -hmm. and the lack of uh, understanding that journalists had about complex topics, uh, this incredible polarization that we're seeing in the Western world between left and right, or however you like to call it, um, blue and, and red tribes. And, um, and, and it, it, it just seemed to me that very few people really understood what was happening at the level of our, our brains and, and, and our biology. And, and I felt that if, people understood uh, the, the science, not, not in the sort of the, the way that the term's been banded around these days, you know, if you believe in the science or not, um, but, but really understood, uh, understood how we move, how we speak, how we see, how we hear, and, and what's actually happening at a biological level. It, it, well, it, it makes us a lot more um, humble about what we know. And it makes us, I think, more accepting of other people's perspectives because one isn't quite so sure that we all understand uh, words in the same way. You know, my, whatever that word is, you know, it might be, let's say, climate change. Mm -hmm. People understand that phrase in, in massively different ways, depending on sort of your, 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 your political perspectives and so on. So um, I... Uh, yeah, so I, I, I felt that if we really understood ourselves better, uh, it would enable educators and teacher, teachers and, and politicians and journalists to, to make 
um, better sense of what they're doing and, and do a better job. Um, but unfortunately, my, my book is uh, quite, you know, as you can probably attest, it, it's technical in parts, mm-hmm. and it touches on a lot of different subjects, so it doesn't suit everyone. No, however, having said that, I think you do a great job in talking about some complexities um, very well and understandably. You know, there isn't a lot of jargon in there. I particularly liked your uh, metaphor of the neuronal orchestra, Mm -hmm. which I think sums up very well, obviously not completely, it's a metaphor, but sums up very well the massive interconnective intercommunication that goes on in the billions of cells in our body that drives most of our behavior. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I think you did that really well without getting too complicated and, and too jargony at all. Mm-hmm. So, so listeners, uh, people watching, you know, don't be frightened of that. It's, it, it's well described and you will be able to understand it. So I think that that was important. It's not, it's not full of jargon. You know, for me, you know, what resonated is, is, is looking at history and how the brain works. It seems to me there are a number of things that we have to take into account that you do. One is a sort of natural uh, hope, as it were, or a natural belief that we can, that there's a sort of symmetry in everything and we can understand it all, mm-hmm. right? And therefore, we just need to look for, for it and we'll, we'll get it all. And that's rather naive at, mm-hmm. at, at one level. The other is sort of a binary thinking, which is, well, it's either this or that. And that clearly in a complex world does not work. I mean, it leads, leads us astray, but that's the way the brain, almost the default setting. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we need to be aware of that. Then the other, some of the other things are the sort of tendency to, you know, when two things happen or seem to happen at the same time to assume they're related, Mm -hmm. if not causally related. Mm -hmm. And again, that can lead us down the wrong rabbit hole. And, And this notion, you know, from the Reformation era that man will be able to, conquer nature and understand everything using a rational, logical approach uh, is clearly, as you believe, clearly faulty. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, the, the, I mean, we, we've discovered so much about the, the human brain that upends old ways of thinking about our behavior. and. Uh, so, so many of the, the perspectives that are scientific uh, only take one so far because our behavior is also the result of our um, mutual experience of the world. And um, I mean, I, I, I love science and, and I think it's indisputable that uh, technology uh, enables us to do unbelievably uh, sophisticated and marvelous things, you know, sending uh, satellites up to space and and using cell phones and so on. I mean, it it, it is technology has become so powerful that we've almost elevated it to a godlike status. And I think 
that the more you really understand about what's happening on the front lines of science, particularly, let's say, just pick one, one tiny little cell in our body, and you think, how much do we actually know about how that one cell works? Okay, we know a little bit about the, how the DNA works and RNA and proteins and some of the, some of the, the, the substances you find there. I mean, we, we know a heck of a lot. But the more you look, the more you realize that we probably only at this point, you know, putting a number on something that's unquantifiable, we probably only know, let's say, 2% of what's actually happening there. And, and, I, and I think it's just too easy for us to get um, taken away by uh, the, the power of the technology around us to imagine that when we look at a cell in our body or a neuron in our brain, that we actually know a lot about what makes it work the way it does. And, and we don't. It, we're a long, long way. And so I think a true understanding of science uh, fosters what I would call epistemological humility. Mm-hmm. And, and I know I call my book How to Understand Everything, but really it should be asterisk. <laughs> and it should be the more you know, the more you realize how little we know. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and to me, that is the basis of wisdom generally, mm-hmm. is to recognize that as you dig down and, and find out more, you realize how much you don't know. And probably the three most difficult words in any language are, I don't know. Um, but, but, you know, it's interesting and interesting in the technology thing, because we're experiencing it, we're emotionally responding to it and all of that. We are going to overvalue it. I mean, GPS, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, it well, is. birds have had that, you know, far better GPS system for millions of years. Uh, you know, they wouldn't want to... Google GPS maps thing? You, no, not at all. Um, so, you know, it, it's so easy for us to, to take it from our own perspective and not step outside yeah. and see the broader picture. Yeah, so we know how our GPS works, but, but scientists and ornithologists uh, have almost no clue about how birds and butterflies do what they do. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's, I, I don't really like using this word because it has connotations of spirituality and, and religion, but, but it's, it's, it's I would say, a miracle that, that these creatures can do what they do. Oh, yeah. And you referenced a, a very small creature in, in the book that has a minimum number of neurons. Um, I forget the elegance. Yeah, the elegance. That's right. Mm. And then you document how much this creature can actually do with basically virtually no neuronal infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I forget how many uh, neurons it has, but but it's I think four or five hundred. Yeah, I think it's less than a thousand for sure. Yeah, 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 and and it. I mean, one can document those things and, and, and sort of say, well, you know, that's not very difficult, like eating and defecating and, and moving around and, and moving away from things it doesn't like towards things it does like and, and having sex. But I mean, it's just remarkable what, what this little creature can do in two or three days with, with such a, an apparently limited um, uh, apparatus. And, and what's also interesting to know is that this little creature has been... Uh, Research probably more than any other, 
because it is comparatively simple to understand. Uh, and we've scientists have documented every single cell and, and how it how it um, gets to take on the function that it does. But when you just pick something simple about like, well, how does the whole thing work? Like when you prod a little C elegans from one side, it'll it'll wriggle accordingly, it'll respond. Uh, and you say, well, how, how well do we understand that whole process? Well, frankly, we don't. Like scientists have virtually no clue. And that, you know, when you have that realization, um, it, it can only make one uh, a little more humble about saying that we understand how the brain works. So I, I just want to just say that in my book, How to Understand Everything, I explain how the cortex works, I, using that metaphor as a, of a neuronal orchestra. And I, and I think that when we hear people say, oh, the human brain is one of the most unbelievably marvelous things in the universe and there's nothing more complicated, I, I sort of roll my eyes because uh, I don't think the human brain is that much more um, sophisticated and complicated than, let's say, a dog's brain or a cat's brain or even... The, the neuronal orchestra and a C elegans. But that's not a very palatable message for nearly everyone. But I, it's fair to say that it's, it's scientifically defensible because we can actually sort of look at the genes and we can look at the comparative complexity of all these different organisms. Anyway, I'm getting a little sciencey. No, 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 that's okay. But, but your point in the book is that the the process in in much smaller organisms of what goes on is very similar to what happens in our brains. It's exactly. just an order of magnitude and complexity. Exactly. But yeah. it's really the same thing. It's it's cells working as a group together, signaling to each other about various important things in the environment that. Mm-hmm is critical for survival. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that probably leads us to one of the core ideas in my book, which is this notion of emergence and ground up organization. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the human brain uh, tends to work, well, not tends to, it does work by looking, or our, our conscious brains work by looking at the, the world sort of from the top down. So we see th- we see things and we know that they have been organized. Uh, if you look out the window and you, you see uh, trees and leaves and birds, um, they appear to have been organized. But what the, the way the world actually works is it's self-organizing. And so every single cell in that leaf has, um, well, has, has duplicated and, and replicated and re- replicated to create the leaf, but it, it actually happens from the bottom up uh, as an emergent system. And, and it's the same in our body. There's no part in our body that takes control, uh, contrary to the way we think, there's no part that takes control of everything. Like it's, it's not like our brain controls everything. It's a, it's an, it's a bottom up uh, self-organizing system. And every single little cell in uh, our bodies, every muscle cell, every brain cell, is doing its sweet little thing, but there's no one part that's lording it over the others. But that's a very, very difficult concept for people to get their head around because we imagine that, quote, this thing called consciousness, um, conscious awareness is sort of um, the, the origin of our behavior. Um, but, it's, but it's 
not a good way of thinking about it. Right. And the implications of that is um, what really controls our behavior. And most people would think, oh, well, it's, you know, we're conscious of that. Of course, you can't be conscious of the things you're unconscious of, which is turns out to be a lot. And therefore, you can't realize how limited in many ways consciousness is. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't possibly control all of these things that are going on in exactly. our mind body. Um, and um, that for a lot of people, that's a bit scary because, again, one of the fundamental, I think, uh, sort of notions is we want to feel in control, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. We want to feel in control, and if we don't, that's really scary. So let's pretend we're in control and they don't have to worry about it, you know? Yeah. I, I personally don't feel that we need to worry because um, I, I've grown very comfortable with the idea that um, sort of my body and my mind and, and, and every part of me um, together, together with what's happening around me, particularly with other people is, um, is a single, if you like it, it's a, it's a single system. And um, I, I don't find it at all concerning that my brain is doing incredible amounts of things that um, I'm unaware of. I, I, I don't find that a problem. And I don't find it a problem that um, in many ways, the, the little proprioceptors and, the, and the, 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 the nerves in my body are really telling my brain sort of what, what to do. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with that at all. I, I, I love the idea that um, every part of me is working together. I, I find it a, an empowering idea, not, not one that um, yeah. is at all concerning. No, absolutely. And um, when you talk about top-down, bottom-up processing, I mean, one way in which that is used, top-down processing is that we come to the world with perception and a lens of what's going on, and we interpret you know, everything through that lens. Uh, bottom up is no, we take those glasses off and we allow what's happening just without trying to interpret it or anything, just just to be there and for without us to speak yes, without to judgment mm -hmm. and to be mindful and experience that. And you know, that echoes a lot with Buddhism, I think, in some ways, in terms yes. of consciousness. Yes. Um, one of my when I was at university, at the University of Nottingham, um, I, I got into Zen. I was really into Zen. And one of my favorite Zen stories was uh, the story of a guy who's at the edge of a cliff and he starts falling down and he's hanging on by his fingernails and he happens, there happens to be some fruit there and he tastes it and he thinks, oh, this is delicious. <laughs> right? And I'm thinking, oh, my God. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? I mean, your brain wouldn't typically do that, and you wouldn't, but, you know, the possibility of what comes into your consciousness at any one time, you know, we are so, so intent, consciously or otherwise, of, of, of creating a narrative and a perspective about what we're seeing and what's happening to us, that in many ways is very restrictive. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 like the Tao Te Ching, the 
we, we need to let go of the categories that we've um, grown used to and the words that we use um, and to experience to experience everything around us without without judgment and uh, without those preconceived uh, ideas and that that can be very uh, empowering and liberating and um, yeah it's a for, for for those who meditate and 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 are, are Buddhist, I mean, it's a it's, yeah. a, it's a marvelous way of being. Right, that I think should be um, better known by more people. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I do see it becoming more accepted and, and valued, and I think that's imp- I think that's important. I mean, if mm-hmm. you if you stopped interpreting that. What would your mind body, this incredible system going on, what would it present? What mm-hmm. would it present to you? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think a lot of issues that people have are a result of having preconceived notions, top-down processing that is very inhibiting to them. Yeah. I th- I think this is particularly um significant to understand in um in in reframing the way we uh interact with people and and like one of the 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 sort of the the things that isn't acknowledged about brains in general but particularly the human brain is that we it works in the moment like we work from microsecond to microsecond or always uh figuring out what's going to happen next and, and acting accordingly the the idea that we 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 stop and think and then act is isn't actually what what's happening um like in our conversation right now you, you know we're it's it's like playing a game of tennis or mm-hmm. a, a, f- a fast moving sport you you react accordingly and one of one of the one of the f- fundamental features of brains is that we need to know what to move towards or away from like what's friend and foe and if someone's in our tribe or not and and we do that whether or not um we want to but if if you have an awareness that that's what your brain is doing automatically because it's a goal-directed device it's not really a device but but that's the way brains work then, then one can train oneself to slow down. So when one's reacting with someone who, let's say, isn't um, doing what we want them to do or appears to be uh, an enemy of some sort, we, we can say, well, just slow down. Like, let's just listen to actually what they're saying rather than uh, sort of putting them in a category, whatever that category is, you know, race category or age category or mm-hmm. um, political category, and um, actually listen without judgment, and that 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 that's a skill that not that not everyone is good at, and and I I think we're getting less good. At it, it, mm. it, you know, speaking generally about sort of society, we we're actually becoming less good at it rather than and better at it. 
No, and then you make your point in your in your book, How to Understand Everything. You reference that great documentary, The Social Dilemma, mm-hmm. of how social media is really dividing people and allows them very easy. And in fact, uh, cultures it. I mean, it feeds it by, you know, curating what you mm-hmm. see. Uh, and and uh, I agree with that. that completely i mean the notion of a debate or a dialogue <laughs> is almost not <laughs> unheard of today it's yeah you know somebody says something you're automatically categorized and all the things you think go with that category and now apply to that person you know and off you go um, yeah i have to say that one of the delights of uh, the lockdown if i could be so bold um has been the flowering of what I would call heterodox sense-making groups like the Stoa here in Toronto and Rebel Wisdom and, mm-hmm. and, and, and others. And, and, and these groups have enabled me to find other people who can talk about controversial and difficult subjects uh, in ways that are constructive and positive and, 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 and exciting and energizing. And it, um, it, it's a part of my life that has become um, a, a delight. And it is, frankly, it's, it's even, um, it even contrasts with what I'm able to do in my household, let's say, with, with my wife. We, we find it very difficult, for instance, to talk about vaccines because we're, we're, we're not quite aligned in, in our perspective. And, and I just w- wish that not only in my household, but more generally, we, we could talk about some of these very difficult, um, or anyway, they should be very difficult subjects because they're so important, you know, um, the, the merits of vaccines and lockdowns and other therapies. We should be able to talk about them without becoming uh, angry and defensive. And, 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 and so uh, having the likes of you coaching people, I think is, is very useful, very important. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, thank you. I mean, it's, um, <clears throat> you know, as I studied communication and looked at how you really communicate what is effective there, which you touch on in your book and clearly has been part of your career in the uh, uh, marketing and branding sector, mm-hmm. you've worked with many companies. Um, you know, that's, that's really important. I mean, that's important. I changed, I, you know, I, I spent a large part, first part of my career in the addictions business. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> you know, I, over the course of my career, as I developed, I learned to approach somebody. If somebody came to me to quit smoking, mm-hmm. what I would say is, well, well, Tom, why do you want to quit smoking? Okay. Because I know he has already heard a gazillion times, oh, yeah, you need to quit because blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. You know, my, my ideas, not yours, right? And mm. I need to know, you need to know why you're doing it, not why That's I think right. you should do it. Because if you don't really want to do it, then there's no point in even That's starting exactly on right. that journey. That's right. That's exactly right. And so with stuff like that and looking at really effective communicators, people meeting people where they're at, and and really listening uh without judgment you know and just trying to help them along 
is, but if that is not what communication has become today. Well, certainly in different areas uh, like yeah, you know, TV it, news. You know, if I if I could express that in in um, in this sort of a way, uh, there, there's what I would call academic type communication, where there's a set of facts and 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 and, and widespread dogma about whatever subject you know about hi- history and geography and 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 and, and science, um, and and that's. Uh, that, that can generally be uh, f- tested in uh, m- multiple choice questions uh, and, and, and things can be scored as right or wrong. Then there's, then there's a- another form of communication which one needs in marketing where the meaning of words depends on the people that are using them. And in, in marketing communications, you can't come at it and say, oh, okay, well, uh, you know, nine-year-old girls um, sort of are wrong because they've got, a, I don't know, sort of mistaken attitude to something or other. I mean, everyone to a marketer is who they are and you have to talk to them on their own level. And, and if I'm talking to a cardiologist, obviously I'm, I'm going to use terminology that, that is familiar to them and use it in a pretty sophisticated way. If I'm talking to um, young children about toys, of course, the way I'm going to do it is completely different. And, and one has to be a lot more accepting about people's differences. And it's the same in sales. Anyone who's in sales knows that they can't start a conversation by saying, well, now I'm going to tell you, you know, what really is uh, right and wrong. I mean, you'll, you'll just get thrown out. Yeah, no, no. Absolutely. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's a complex topic that is not addressed at all, I don't think, or hardly at all in education or training, really. Maybe in marketing it is, but, you know, certainly in the professions where it's really important, like medicine, when you are talking to people about their lives and their behavior, doctors are trained in that. The doctors yeah. typically have the, the notion that I'll tell you, I'll tell you, and then you'll go and do it. Yeah. No, I think there's been that. a trend away in academia uh, from teaching the importance of nuance and body language but because we've been so, we've become so beholden to a modernist scientific uh, mindset. So uh, now if someone's taught, Shakespeare or someone something like that that they're asked a lot of uh, questions that are sort of about facts then kids aren't generally taught to describe the 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 incomprehensibly confusing feelings um, that are being communicated and and the sort of the subtext because there's no right and wrongs there um, it, 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 it's a skill uh, and an import, probably one of the most important life skills. And, and I know you're very sensitive to that. But um, I, I, my guess is that 50 or 100 years ago, that was very much more a part of education and, um, and, and, and the way people learned in general, you know, because they, 
many more people sang songs and played musical instruments mm -hmm. and did mm -hmm. artsy sorts of things because they didn't have a TV right. and, and a cell phone. Um, and so we've, we've become, we've become cut off from nuance and, and uh, the indefinability of feelings. And, and I think it's working against us. We're certainly working against kids yep. who uh, aren't being taught these things in education in the institutions. Yeah, and interestingly, you know, the the, the oft obser observation that out of the babes, you know, out of the mouth of babes comes truth. Or one, I, I think part of that is when kids are developing, they do not yet, have not yet been trained in this sort of binary, limited, top-down top down thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're so creative and ask all mm -hmm. these questions, you know, mm -hmm. and the, the adults get cross, you know, you, know, you say to your kid, well, you can have the cookie or the ice cream. And they say, well, why can't I have both? Don't be so greedy. They're not being greedy. That's just yeah. an artificial distinction you've put on it. Why can't yeah. you have both? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Rankin, I, I want to put you on the spot a little bit, if I could. Please. So um, we're talking here about, you know, being able to discuss things. And, and I, I wrote a book that has, a, a, I, I think, a, um, a number of ideas that, frankly, I haven't read about elsewhere. Sort of um, bottom up, yes, but, but the way the cortex works and, and, and sort of the evolution of language and so on. I, I haven't read any of those accounts anywhere else. And, and, and many of them deviate from sort of mainstream academic accounts. So I'm curious, what have you read in my book that you disagree with? Because there's so much we agree on and, and are aligned on. But what are some of the things you tripped over? Do you go, uh-uh, that's not quite right. Can you recall anything? Or, or, or um, You know, honestly, I'll be quite honest with you, nothing comes to mind. Honestly, really? nothing comes to mind. And part of that is what you say is... You know, part of being consilient, and we'll talk about that word in a minute, mm -hmm. that, you know, that bottom-up is, again, we don't want to get into binary thinking is, oh, well, if you think this, then you're in this category. No, you could think that. You could think differently on me and one thing, but we could have agreement on pretty much everything else. Or we could yeah. have agreement that it's okay, that it's perfectly okay to have different views. That's not necessarily a divergence. It's a difference in emphasis, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so no, because that's where I, you know, that's how my mindset has evolved, really. Yeah. And that's why I enjoyed the book so much, because it resonated with that. Um, and certainly there were, I mean, ton, I can tell you tons of things that did resonate with mm. me, um, you know, particularly, and I have this in my book, I think therefore I'm wrong, about the limitations of science, in, mm -hmm. in rationality and the fact of the matter, rationality, I believe, is an over, um, overvalued, overvalued yes. concept. Yes. I mean, as you make that point too, there is really no distinction between emotions and rationality. And, and you know, I have a book out that I wrote with a colleague called Intuitive Rationality, mm -hmm. which shows that rationality, there is no such thing as perfect rationality. Mm -hmm. And you see this, you see this all the time in the use of research and the use of statistics and data. Absolutely. Okay. And, and one of my favorites is, is sports. 
if you listen to a sports broadcast of anything, tennis, yeah. I know tennis you like, tennis, soccer, uh, you know, football, American football, what have you, about half the commentary is, yeah, well, you know, um, they only, you know, make 10% of their third down, so what? It means nothing. It has no predictive value. The concept of momentum. Oh, they've got momentum now. That could change in that when they fumble the next. It has no relevance. It's yeah. just like, oh, we can label it now. And, yeah, and, and we build it. narratives around the things that we um, are observing, even though those narratives aren't really grounded. Right, no, and, and it got me thinking about... Uh, I have been in the past a big baseball fan and and this concept of money ball where, you know, statistics started replacing, replacing coaches. And again, you know, you listen to a baseball uh, broadcast, they say, well, so-and-so, you know, with, uh, with two men on and two men out only hits, you know, 197. I have a better question. What does he hit when he's had an argument with his wife? <laughs> what does he hit when his kids aren't doing very well? What does he hit when the coach just told him a joke? Those to me are actually much more important and relevant or as relevant to the variables that are, that are picked, you know, the easy ones. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's a, that, that's a useful way of um, sort of differentiating between the top down and bottom up um, way of thinking about things. The, the bottom-down way of thinking about things is uh, you, 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 you had a game, you know, it was like 15-13 or um, so many, you know, so many passes. Uh, you, you've got all the stats. Um, and indeed, that's a very useful way of look, looking at the situation. But, but the way it actually happens is accumulation of all of those little incidents that you're talking about. The, you know, the glance of one player to another, what the coach said, uh, whether someone, you know, was pissed off that morning. Um, and and it, it's, it's all the tiny little things sort of going together that actually determine what happens in the game. And of course, those tiny little things can never be forecast. They can never be anticipated because this world and our brain and is a complex critical system and everything's sort of on a, certainly in our mind is it, is on a knife edge of, of um, sort of moving this way or that. And so, you know, to imagine that just because one understands everything at a macro level, that one can forecast all the micro events, or at least sort of through math mathematics, one can get rid of um, the uncertainties. It, 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 it's just, um, it's a misapprehension of how the world works. Um, and I think that it's a, I would argue it's a metaphor for exactly what you're talking about with consilience, about you get a piece of information, then you do the top-down processing from it, which has also, I think, been a problem in science. I mean, I look at, uh, I, won't, <laughs> I once wrote a piece from Arnold the Rat, and Arnold the Rat had been uh, a subject in an experiment on addiction. And uh, he'd been, you know, as they are, held in solitary confinement in his cage and then, you know, given given a drug or Nicotine given alcohol. Or mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, he uses it. And, now, and Arnold the Rat said, you've got nothing to do with addiction. I'm just, I'm lonely. I'm, I'm stuck in this cage. <laughs> I, I want my buddies. Hell. <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, and indeed, actually, there is now recent research. You know, one of the famous psychology uh, things was the Thorndike effect, how cats will, you know, be conditioned. Somebody did the, the subject, the, the research a different way and found totally the opposite. <laughs> You know, if they nudge the gate open, they'll, they'll get out. It's got nothing to do with <laughs> the contingencies yeah. you put in it. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the one <laughs> one little anecdote about um, sort of psychological research on on mice and rats, uh, which have been a staple um, for uh, over a hundred years in in trying to figure out how the brain works. One of one of the one of the ways that um, that these animals exist has been completely opaque to scientists because, because they just had no clue what was going on. Like mice and rats uh, are constantly talking to each other with, with ultrasonic um, sounds. Um, but it's only recently, I guess in the last 20 or 30 years, that we've had the electronic equipment and, and the imagination to actually start listening to those sounds. And um, and it, it's a, it's a lot more sophisticated than we could have ever imagined from these you know tiny little creatures, and 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 it's amusing that um, I guess psychologists for so long reckoned that uh, these simple animals like well they're not so simple but mm. pigeons and rats and mice could be um, could could be researched by putting them in, let's say, a Skinner box and seeing how mm -hmm. they res respond to getting food or electric shocks and so on. It, 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 in hindsight, it's such a naive way of understanding the, their nature and, and the way they yeah. behave. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and somewhere else I wrote about dogs in the Pavlov experiment. I'm explaining how they train Pavlov to give them food, you know? Um, it's, <laughs> they're not that stupid. Um, I'm writing a book where my, my dog comes to therapy, you know, with me and then gives comments on, you know, the typical therapeutic approach that yeah. I give, you know? Yeah. And how does your dog um, think of you? I mean... Uh... Well, you know, I, I actually... Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, he appreciates the fact, even though I've somehow rewired his brain so that I can actually turn what's going on in his brain into language that I can understand. Basically, he does not like talking. He does not like words. Too much, too much confusion, basically, right? Well, too dogs can read so much. Oh, um, my gosh, they don't need... And cats and all, that, all the animals, all the mammals, yeah. they can yeah. read so much from body language. And I, I get a kick out of watching two dogs approach each other. And, and um, it, it blows me away that for the longest time, people didn't really appreciate the, the amount they're communicating uh, th through, through them, the way their eyes are moving, uh, the way they position their bodies. And, and, uh, and, and it's constantly evolving. And of, and of course, when they get close to each other, they smell each other. And so mm. the, the, there's their realms open to those creatures that are completely um, cut off from ourselves. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I think to, to really understand communication amongst humans, mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've got to start appreciating how much communication isn't, isn't verbal. Right, right, right. 
Now, there is that experiment by Albert Moravian in the 1960s, which is often, I think, mistakenly, even he warned against it, shows, oh, 93% of all communication is nonverbal. And, and well, what happened is an experiment. The experimenter actually said something where there was a distinction, a contradiction between what he said and, and his mannerisms. So it might be something, I'm not angry. If I do that, are you going to listen, you know, listen to my word or are you going to my gesture? Are you going to look at sure. my gesture, right? But that doesn't mean that 93% of all communication is nonverbal. In a situation sure. like that, where you say very few words that are contradictory to your... Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, the British people, you know, you know, our, our, our folk back in, in Great Britain always appreciate that there's uh there's a certain artistry in in using words contrary to what you mean them to mean mm-hmm. you know like you know ha- have a nice day in england uh, means like don't have a nice day um and and you, you, you know I, I guess we appreciate sarcasm and 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 it tends not to go over terribly well in north america no, you have to be very careful. Otherwise, you could c- cause a microaggression. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, so let's get to the concept of consilience. Okay. Which is what your book really is, is trying to aim at, which is this bottom-up approach. Um, can you explain it better than I have? Yeah, I'm sure you can. Well, no, that, that, that's, a, that's, that's a good explanation. Um Consilience is a word that was coined in 1840 by William Hewell, who was a, um, a polymath and a, a, br- a brilliant scientist, as well as a theologian. And um, it, it doesn't actually mean agreement. Um, consilience doesn't right. mean sort of, um, yeah. Cons- consensus. Consult and consensus. <laughs> it actually means the jumping together of ideas. And so I, I like the word because it's what happens in the brain when we look at something and you instantly recognize, oh, okay, I'm holding up a pencil. That's a pencil because your, your, your neuronal orchestra is playing the, um, the symphony of a, of a pencil. And that, that's, a, or to use a, a jazz metaphor, it, it, it's actually sort of playing the, the, the tunes that mean pencil. Um, so that, that's a, a jumping together of um, sort of what, what our neurons are doing. But, uh, but I also use it in terms of the jumping together, together of different disciplines. Um, 200 years ago, physics and chemistry were separate disciplines. They, they didn't overlap. Um, and biology was completely different again. But now physics, chemistry, biology, genetics, um, anthropology, archaeology, they've, they've grown together that, you know, we know so much that we've had a jumping together of all of these disciplines. And I think the the most interesting aspect of all of this is the jumping together of all the subjects relating to uh, our biology and and the, the way our bodies work and, and genetics and, and what happens in each of our cells. Th- this jumping together is forcing us to acknowledge that the way we understand things is is very different from our historical understanding of ourselves. In in other words, this jumping together, this consilience of inductions, according to William Buell, is forcing us 
to realize that we're wrong about, for instance, the supremacy of human reason and how we're moving towards a place of um, uh, uh, love and harmony because we're becoming so damn smart. Uh, so this, this consilience, this jumping together is like saying we, we really should, we really cannot um, continue to believe the mythologies that have been sort of part of our textbooks for 50, 100 years. It, 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 our mythologies are, um, are just that, they're, they're mythologies. And many of them are sound scientific, mm-hmm. um, but, but they're just untenable when, when you understand what's been discovered in, in, in genetics and, and biochemistry and, and uh, evolutionary psychology and so on. Um, yeah, so I, I, th- I think we're at a, a unique moment in human history. Uh, mind, mind you, every single moment's unique, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, but th- this is special, but not, not because we've become so damn smart because of computers and so on, but rather it, it forces us to recognize that our brain um, isn't divorced from our body and it doesn't work anything like a computer. And, and if you look at um, psychology textbooks from even 20 years ago or 30 or 50 years ago, the, the, the notion was that the brain was something like a switching device, something very, very similar to a computer that handles information. That ain't the case. It's just mm-hmm. absolutely now irrefutably wrong. I mean, it, it, it's laughably wrong. And, and I, th- I think this is an, an, an incredible time and I'm just looking for... I guess a little more support from uh, people like you to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's look at what has actually been discovered, and and let's uh, use that information to reevaluate ourselves as a species, and and to use that knowledge to become wiser, so we can um, govern ourselves better and help children lead more fulfilling lives that there's so much there's so much overturning Mm -hmm. uh to be done and so Mm -hmm. consilience i i hope is this um to use it in edward o wilson who was a a, you know is a a brilliant academic and writer and a humanitarian and an ecologist and an ethologist you know to, to use it in his terminology that it's it's the coming together of science and art and the humanities uh, so that there's no, there's no difference now, or there shouldn't be a difference in a, in a, in a, in a chasm between, let's say science and the humanities and art and religion and so on that, you know, we're now at a point where there's been a jumping together of those things. And, and, and I think it can be, if you really want to get your head around it, when it's very, very difficult to get your head around it because it's a new, genuinely a new paradigm, um, it's transform. It can be transformative, um, and it's not saying, "Oh, well, if you understand the science, it, you know, you, you, we." It's certainly not saying that through science you can understand everything. Uh, absolutely not. Um, it, 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 it. We're actually saying that through consilience, you 
can better appreciate the skills that 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 different people have the skills of scientists the skills of mathematicians computer scientists the skills of uh, counselors and psychologists and 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 theologians and historians and and so on they they all have um value yeah and and the value of sports and theater and poetry and all of those <laughs> things they they have complementary value uh in our lives and and so consilience i hope is the dawning of a new appreciation of um the interconnectedness of uh, and yep. the and the mutual importance of all of these different things yeah does that makes sense yes no to me it does um interestingly you know from my own experience uh when i was in middle school and high school um we were separated very early um like maybe let's think what the equivalent would be seventh or eighth grade and oh well you'll never be a scientist so you'll do the arts and you know you're not good at arts so you'll be you know you're good at math you're science and mm-hmm. that, that that well you're not very intelligent and you're not going to go very far so let's like put <laughs> so, you in a lower stream yeah yeah and there was streaming and and all of that and so yeah. you know it's that is a very unhelpful unproductive and um oppressive in some ways way of of thinking about one's skills or your kids skills or anyone's absolutely skills and you know you think about how some of the greatest ideas came about you know typically they came about not when people were sitting at their desk thinking about you know time space my understanding was that einstein was sitting under the tree watching the sun rays come through the clouds and pondered the very artistic question i wonder what it would be like to ride on the sunbeam yeah and then you know that becomes the theory of relativity amazing yeah but that's taking in all of that experience it doesn't just happen when you're in beta wave mode focusing sitting at your desk thinking about it in a in a processing way and i think that to me is also part testimony to this notion of bottom up that's you right know, take the lens off get out of beta processing yeah i i i think that if if one um cultivates uh, a variety of different interests as to whatever suits one you know if it's music or making things or uh writing or or singing or whatever um the, the, they're mutually empowering and enriching and and i think what well, you know to be take another swipe at academia the um the the, the sort of the mental uh, c- cognitive uh iq type things have have um subsumed the, the the physical and and i believe that many people particularly young boys young males they they they're far better at actually doing and making mm-hmm. and and you learn um in in ways that are extremely valuable by doing those things and and they later in life they they can help one's cognitive abilities so it, it's not a question of oh, okay well you learn to make something and it somehow um displaces your ability to be in, intelligent in a sort of a, a sort of a classic um 
yep. ticking boxes and intelligence tests. Yeah, it's they're mutually empowering. And what's more, you know, I, I would argue that now we understand what's actually happening in the cortex, in, in this wrinkly part of our brain, we, we can actually make sense of how these different things work and how they are so similar. So when we put words together, you know, when we say words, we imagine traditionally that it's, it's a sort of a cognitive thing, that it's, you know, it's handling information. But when, when you understand really what's happening at a biological level, um, saying a word is no different uh, at a at a biological level than actually manipulating a tool or making some pancakes or whatever. Mm -hmm. it, it, they're, they're uh, astonishingly similar. That you know, just using different parts of your body, but they, they both involve muscular movement, and 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 that's not that's not um, a way of looking at uh, you know what what we do. In a in a way that jibes with traditional viewpoints, but it mm. but but once again, you know, I'd claim that that's irrefutable. I mean, you just look at the biology, mm. and 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 there you see it. Yeah, I had I had a friend, actually, a guy I helped write a book, really interesting guy. He went to college that was an unconventional college. It was really all hands-on, project-based, hardly any classroom stuff. He wanted to be a vet. But no, no vet school would take him because he didn't have the usual mm. uh, credentials and paper to show that he passed this course and that course. So he did a variety of things. He was a scuba diver instructor. He became an auto mechanic at one point. Eventually, he did get into vet school and said that the most valuable thing that he ever did to help him in surgery was being an auto mechanic. Yes, one of the curiosities that I've heard about um, about um, trainee surgeons these days is that um, it's become very hard to train them to use a needle to suture um, to, to suture uh, 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 wounds and, mm -hmm. and um, so on. And and the reason is is because the these young surgeons have been playing video games and they, they haven't actually been taught to use the fine motor skills that are required to manipulate a needle. Um, when, when I was young, even though I'm a male and it wasn't a very male thing to do, you know, we used scissors and, and, and needles mm -hmm, and threads mm -hmm. to, to make things. Um, but that, that's, that's not so much how kids learn these days. And it, it means that uh, surgeons are having a far harder time becoming good surgeons. Uh, yeah. yeah, there you go. Perfect. And we know about neuroplasticity, right? What you practice, your brain strengthens that infrastructure. Yeah. So yeah. that becomes harder to change. So Yeah, but, but it's possible. still changeable. I mean, you, oh, yeah, can still, you, you can still learn to sew no matter uh, what age you are. Mm -hmm. You can still learn how to wield a, a pair of fine scissors um it, it it but learning skills takes a, a lot of time very often you know it, it's not it's not like opening a book and reading a, a chapter and then oh okay i get it uh it, it it can take months if not years um but and and it uh, as we know now the brain is plastic and it continues to 
change and evolve and we can learn as we um as we age even even old folk like us oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> well as i like to say you can treat an old dog new tricks but it won't forget the old ones too easily <laughs> <laughs> Um, one thing, when you were talking about the neuronal orchestra, um, mm. which is a great metaphor, I was reminded, uh, I have another contact and colleague of mine, who actually devised a program for uh, people with developmental disabilities uh -huh. based on the concept of rhythm and timing. And what he found was their timing was not very good. But if you trained them to keep time in different ways, um, they actually improved some of their abilities. Now, I know you were using the concept of uh, orchestra as, as sort of a metaphor, um, but I just found that connection interesting, that, that timing is very important in the development of routines. And I think it also applies to sports too, because one of the things that happens if you're in a funk or what have you, sports-wise, is probably what's happened is your timing is a, and rhythm is a little off. And the more you think about it and the harder you try, probably the worse it gets. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that, that's such an important point. And, and one can take it to, to profound levels, uh, mm -hmm. I, I think. I mean, that you know, there's timing in sort of the way people speak to each other and, and, um, and, and, and writing and sports. But, but, but so much of what we do depends on a meticulous uh, coordination of, you know, let's, when, when we speak a word, like the sequence of events, you know, from our lungs, our larynx, our uh, uh, tongue and so on, is, uh, is um, meticulously uh, timed. And, and, it, and if it's off slightly, well, you, you, people can't understand you. But, but you can, but we don't realize that just pretty much everything that we do is repetitive. Um, I, I wouldn't say pretty much everything. I would say everything that we do is made up of tiny little repetition, re rep repetitive steps. So when we sort of walk to the kitchen, let's say, um, it, it's made up of a series of steps. It's also made up of a series of breathing. And, 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 and you can sort of, you can even take that down to what's happening in each of our cells. We, we tend to imagine the cells as sort of like, static lumps you know doing a, a job but what you don't what we don't generally realize is that there's it's a dynamic system happening in there it's like a, an orchestra of different processes and and it's always humming along you know with various different notes and that's what sort of defines what a cell does because of, of its harmonics if you like and 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 so at every level um we're part of we are a dynamic system we and we um are made up of dynamic systems and it's all about timing and and we don't i think many many people that include myself don't really appreciate appreciate that and how important it is and 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 how we can probably train ourselves better in everything that we do if we understand that yeah very very interesting well we will continue because we haven't really 
dived into the topic of consciousness okay. very deeply. Um, but I think this has been awesome. I really appreciate you. Um, again, how to understand everything. And there's a subtitle to that, which is? Consilience, a new way to see the world. Right. So my name's to Tom. If, you, if people want to track down the book, you can just Google my name, Tom Beekbane. That's B-E-A-K-B-A-N-E. And, and possibly the words consilience, and you'll find the book. It's on Amazon. There's, a, I think, a really good audio book that's narrated by a British stage actor called Philip Batley. Uh, I think he did a good job, um, and and it's you know it, it it it's I think pretty easy to listen to. Uh, it's hard to I think concentrate on everything, um, and that's why various people who read the book and listened to the audiobook have said they have needed to listen to or they've wanted to listen to it three, four, and five times, which is um, something I would never do. But um, yeah, I'd be delighted if um, anyone who's interested in consilience and a new way to see the world uh, got the book. And, and uh, I have a website so they can contact me through that website, how to understand everything.beekbane.com. And, uh, and I, I'd love to have a dialogue with people because I, I realize it's, it's not a big group um, of folk like you who can just chew through this uh, matter and, and really get their head around it. Yeah, well, that's that's awesome. I do. We are going to do another one on consciousness um, because I'd, write, I'd really like that because mm -hmm. I I don't think consciousness is is so very mysterious. No, I know that's why we need to do it. Um, <laughs> but um, Tom, it's been awesome. Uh, really great. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and your book, and I appreciate uh, what you've been doing. Uh, until next time. Yeah. Well, let's let's reconnect and, and let's do another one. And, and this has been an absolute delight. And it's um, it, it's 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 wonderful to meet, um, I guess, a kindred mind and, and certainly uh, someone with a very deep intellect. So and, and very I have to say you're modest. I mean, it's not like you're boastful about your knowledge um, that that's highly appealing to me. Well, I realize how limited it is. Um, so, um, so good. Let's 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 hope that humility continues. Uh, great. Well, we'll do it again, Tom. Thank you so much. Thank you.